we're currently in a series entitled Advancing in Joy, study of the book of Philippians. Some of you maybe have read through that book before, familiarized yourself, possibly four brief chapters. You could literally read it in about 15 minutes with a good cup of coffee. A little over 100 verses, a couple pages in most of your Bibles, and yet loaded with, with truth propositions that will make your head spin if you sit with them long enough. One of those we get to take a look at this morning. For, for to me, to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. When Paul says things like that, he, he's not out to create cute little bumper sticker phrases. He's not out to create the next thing that Christians can put on the side of a coffee mug or on a t-shirt. He, he's out to fuel and fan into flame a joy that's unrivaled by anything that this world could possibly ever offer us. And so that's my prayer for us all this morning, uh, that, that our joy would be fanned into flame by the power of the gospel and that God would get the glory. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. We'll be in the back half of verse 18 and working our way through the remainder of the chapter this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. I mentioned this in our pre-service meeting as we prayed for what was to take place in this time as we gather, that the Apostle Paul, if you read the book of Philippians and you sit with it long enough, he comes across kind of like a gnat. He's just kind of buzzing in your ear, um, uh, making it uncomfortable to, to continue along the path of cultural comfortable Christianity, buzzing in your ear, um, making it uncomfortable to, to think about continuing along the path of compartmentalized Christianity, a Christianity that has its particular time slots throughout the week, where, whereas everything else is for us, not for Jesus. And, um, and I don't know where you find yourself this morning as we continue to work through this series, if you find yourself kind of doing this with Paul, like you do with a gnat sometimes. Or, or if maybe you'd really like to just squash him, just kill what he would have to say altogether. Or, as it's my hope, that, that we would hear that, that it's not an annoying buzzing. It's, it's the truth and, and that Paul's saying it for the sake of, of our own joy and, and the very glory of God. And so it's with that that we dive in this morning. Let me pray for us before we jump in and get to work. On mornings like this, uh, God, I feel like there is a lot at stake. There's always a lot at stake when the church gathers. But when you have particular uh, truth propositions like Paul's, for me, uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain, a phrase that many of us have heard dozens and dozens of times along the way, uh, it feels like there's a little bit more at stake. I pray that we wouldn't walk away uh, with the same understanding that we brought into this room as it pertains to this verse and, and all the verses that surround it, uh, but rather that the implications of a declaration like that uh, would awaken our minds and, and root themselves deep in the recesses of our being as we leave this place this morning. God, I pray that the gospel would uh, fuel and fan into flame uh, a bunch of warriors who would go out for the cause of Christ making much of him this week. Holy Spirit, would you awaken that in us in these moments to come together? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we left Paul last week, if you were here, 
um, rejoicing in Roman shackles. And we get to pick back up with much of the same this morning. The crux of what Paul's going to declare in this morning's passage is this very simply. Regardless of what's to come circumstantially, I'm confident of two things. Jesus will be exalted in me and I will be satisfied in him. In other words, Jesus is going to get the glory no matter what I go through. And I'm going to get the joy no matter what I go through. And so though I have no idea circumstantially of what lies ahead, I know exactly the outcome. God's glory and my joy. And in that sense, I cannot lose. That, that's the crux of what Paul's going to declare this morning. And so let's dive in and see it in his words. At the end of verse 18, picking up there, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Remember, Paul's not only imprisoned in Rome, he's imprisoned in Rome with the possibility of impending death. And here Paul declares that he fully expects to be delivered. And the way he sees deliverance coming about is through the Spirit's helping or supplying and through the church praying. So you have divine initiative and human responsibility both at work in Paul's theology. Application point right out of the gate. Do you know people who need to experience deliverance this morning? Do you know people who need the supply of the Spirit, the sustaining presence of the Spirit? If so, according to the Apostle Paul, here's what you can do about it. You can pray. According to the Scriptures, your prayers matter. God listens to and is moved by the prayers of His people. On the flip side, if you need deliverance this morning, if you need the supply of the Spirit, the sustaining presence of the Spirit, you, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, to be honest with other people about what's going on in your life and to ask them to pray for you, to invite them into that. All of a sudden, this idea of intertwining your life with other people in the church begins to make more sense, does it not? It, it may feel a little easier to retreat when things get hard, that's human nature, isn't it? We, we kind of move off into a dark, isolated corner when things are not going well in our lives. But, but when we do so, we're actually making it harder on ourselves, according to the scriptures. When we do that, we rob ourselves of the supply of the spirit that comes through the prayers of the church, as Paul puts it. Going back to last week, the, the prayers of brothers and sisters rallying around you and asking for the Spirit of God to sustain you, especially in your dark moments, that just might be the difference between declaring that Jesus is enough in those dark moments or wasting your suffering. May no one ever get the impression that this church is heavy on theology and light on prayer. I hope we never have that reputation. We deeply need the supply of the Spirit that comes through the prayers of the saints. Now, here's where it gets a little crazy. Right? Paul says that he fully expects to be delivered. If you look at verses 18 and 19, let me ask you this. What do you think that means? Most logical, sensible human beings would assume that to mean release from imprisonment. Right? We, we all pray certain ways. When we think of the word deliverance, we have something circumstantial in mind. Right? And nothing necessarily wrong with that. But that's not Paul's idea of deliverance, according to this morning's passage. For Paul, deliverance might mean release from imprisonment, but it might mean a martyr's death. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again, but this time let's add verse 20 to the mix. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not uh, be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What a crazy, crazy man. All right, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Pray with me, guys. Pray for my deliverance, will you? Pray that I would courageously honor Christ if he chooses to deliver me by way of imprisonment. And pray that I would courageously honor Christ if he chooses to deliver me by way of the gallows. Most of us don't have a category for this, so you know. The word deliverance in most of our minds, again, carries with it certain connotations. Think about the way you pray. One of the only times that we think of death as a form of deliverance is when someone is physically suffering, when a person's quality of life is in drastic decline, right? That's not the case for the Apostle Paul, is it? This brother's still got some gas in the tank. So what what in the world would possess a man who's, who's neither suicidal nor in drastic physical decline to declare death to categorically be a form of deliverance? Thankfully, he doesn't leave us speculating on that. The answer is found in the next few verses. Beginning in verse 21, he says this, that famous phrase, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paraphrase, I cannot lose. No matter how this thing plays out, I'm on the winning side. Says a man shackled in a Roman prison. Again, I said this last week. It's quite possible that a man in shackles just might be freer than some of us in this room this morning. It's not that Paul gets to decide his his fate. That's not what these verses are getting at. He's not actually choosing how things are going to play out for him. His future is in the hands of a sovereign God. He knows that. But he's giving us a window into his thinking as it pertains to the possibility of outcomes. He essentially says, if it were up to me, think about this. This is nuts. If it were up to me, if I had to choose what's behind door number one, continued life and ministry, or what's behind door number two, death, hmm, That's a toughie. Let me think about that. Again, Paul's not suicidal. If you're wondering how someone could say such a thing, the good news is that he goes on to unearth what he means by that. He allows us a further window into his thought process. If we only had verse 21, again, this is the problem with taking verses out of context. We might have a problem on our hands. The original Greek of verse 21 is almost caveman-like. There's no to be verb in verse 21. The Greek reading is literally to live Christ, to die gain. What does that mean? He tells us in verse 22 exactly what that means. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if I continue to live, that's a good thing because I have Christ exalting things to get done on planet earth particularly as it relates to your progress and joy in the faith, my, my Philippian friends. We'll get there in a moment. But, Paul says, to die is gain too. 
He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If I die, I get to experience the closest possible union with Jesus that you could imagine. In other words, what Paul's saying here in these verses, if I'm being selfish, if I'm basing it on sheer desire, departing and being with Jesus sounds better. That's the option that allows me to be united with him in a way I've never known. Nothing trumps that. But if I'm being selfless, think about this. If I'm putting others first, the continuation of my life is the better option. That'll allow me a little more time to invest in the church and point more people to Jesus. Something tells me that the Apostle Paul has met a Jesus that many in our context have not met. How can someone declare death to be gain? Think of all the things that death will cost you. It'll cost you family. It'll cost you loved ones, those that you share a bloodline with, that you've invested your life with for years, maybe even decades. It'll cost you friends, those that you don't share a bloodline with, but that you've intertwined your life with in such a way that you would feel the loss. There would be a severing from those people. It would cost you possessions, all of those things that you've spent years and years acquiring. You, you don't get to take that stuff with you. And on and on we could go. What Paul's saying is this. If you add up all of those losses and replace them with Jesus, you gain in that transaction. That's gospel math. And if you believe that in your moment of dying and joyfully declare it, Jesus is magnified in your dying. John Piper says it this way. He says, Christ is glorified in you when he is more precious than all that life can give or death can take. I don't know about you. I want to see my kids graduate high school. Make no mistake about it. I want to walk my daughters down the aisle. I do. I want to enroll in and graduate from the next academic program. I got things on the brain that I would love to get done in this life. I can think of a hundred reasons for wanting to live and all of those good things. But notice that Paul doesn't say that to live is any of those things ultimately. For Paul, to live is to make Jesus look like what he really is. Supremely valuable. That's the mission statement for Paul's life. On the flip side, if I'm honest, it's really hard for me personally to embrace this idea that death is actually gain. And again, I'm not talking about some radical, morbid thinking here. I'm simply talking about viewing death as gain because I get to see Jesus in all of his glory. It's easy to say that, but if we're honest, if we were on our deathbed right now, for many of us, there would be this terror uh, stricken within us. What all this tells me is that I personally need more of an eyeful of Jesus. I don't know about you. I want to know him more. I want to know him in such a way that I start talking like the Apostle Paul, that, that he's not the guy with the letterman's jacket amongst the, 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 uh, the, the family of Christians as, as far as the world's concerned, that when I talk about my living, my life's purpose, it's all about the magnification of Jesus. And when I talk about my dying, it's all about the magnification of Jesus. Again, going back to last week, you cannot help but talk about that which you love. Paul loves Jesus, and so as he ponders the possibility of death, 
He can't help but talk about the ramifications of his relationship with Jesus in dying. And as he ponders the possibility of living a little longer, he cannot help but talk about the ramifications of his relationship with Jesus in living. That whether I live or die, I'm going to make Jesus look like what he really is, supremely valuable. That's what Paul's saying. Let me ask you this this morning. What is it about Paul's words that you personally find convicting? Is it this idea of magnifying Jesus in your dying? Is that where the, the struggle is, embracing the gain of Christ in death? Or, or is it this idea of actually living for him, embracing the idea that your life is meant to count for the sake of the gospel? Never thought I would use this example. It's not the best movie in terms of writing, production, directing. But um, some of you, maybe you've seen the, the movie Suicide Squad came out a few months ago. One of those comic book movies. Uh, you get all the, the villains of various comics coming together, being freed from uh, imprisonment to go fight an even darker evil together. And, and one of those characters is the Joker from the Batman series and, and his girlfriend, Harley Quinn. And you kind of get the backstory of how they met one another and, and how he uh, radicalized her into thinking like he thinks and, and views the world. And at one point, as he's trying to see if she's really in this with him, the Joker asks Harley Quinn this question. He says, would, would you die for me? No, 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 wait, that, that's too easy. Would you, would you live for me? Very compelling scene. Two of the most profound words in this part of the passage are, are the words, to me. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everyone, everyone must fill in that blank personally. How would you finish that sentence? For me, living is blank. What goes in that blank? However you finish that sentence will determine what dying really means for you. If living is all about money, then dying will be the devastating loss of everything that you've acquired in life. If living is about beauty, then dying will be the, the devastating loss of youthful appearance and health as you decline and move towards certain death. And on and on and on we could go. Taking good things and, and making them your life's ambition can only leave you wanting in the end. Paul wants us to spend our lives for something that not only matters now, but will matter a billion years from now. Namely, Jesus if living is Christ, only then is it possible that dying might actually be joyful gain. It's the only way it makes sense. Paul goes on to say, convinced of this, convinced that remaining in the flesh for your sake is a good thing, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul has a vision for the brothers and sisters in Philippi. Namely, that they might experience progress and joy in the faith. And what in the world does that mean? That can just become this sort of up in the clouds Christian phrase. <clears throat> Paul's hope is this. It's that his friends in Philippi would find their joy more solidly rooted in the truth of the gospel. That the roots of faith, namely the roots in Christ would go deeper and deeper and deeper into their lives over the course of time. It goes back to everything that we talked about in January. The gospel becoming more rhythmic in our lives, having this strengthening effect on us. In other words, you could say it this way. 
Faith is more than a participant in conversion. Faith is also a participant in Christian growth. Paul says, I want you to experience both progress and joy in the faith. Progress in the faith and joy in the faith, they actually go hand in hand. As we find the roots of the gospel going deeper in our lives, we will experience increased joy in Christ. And notice verse 26, that as your joy in Christ progresses, God actually gets the glory. He says this, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that, right, here's the purpose of that progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is, it. This is exactly what John Piper means when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Let me, let me stop for a minute and say something about joy. We've been going at this thing for three weeks now, and all of us have brought our preconceived notions of what joy is into this room. We talked about this in the, the Virtue series last summer where we worked through the fruit of the Spirit, and we spent a week on joy, that there's this distinction that, that maybe you've heard in the Christian community that, that joy is something very different from happiness. That happiness is an emotion and it's temporary. Joy is a deeply rooted disposition of the, of the heart in contrast. Did you know that the distinction between happiness and joy is a relatively new invention? That, that it hasn't been around for long. Throughout church history, um, men like Spurgeon... And, and Wesley, along with the Puritans, use the two words interchangeably. Just to give you one example, it's up on the screen behind me. Jonathan Edwards, when preaching through John chapter 15, verse 11, which says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As, as Edwards sought to unpack that verse, this is what he said to the congregation that he was preaching in the midst of. The happiness Christ gives to his people is a participation of his own happiness. Edwards did not follow up that statement by going, whoa, 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 I actually meant joy. Scrap that. Cross out the happiness thing. That, that happiness is not what we're after. We're actually after joy. No, he, he intertwined the two as one and the same. Charles Spurgeon to his congregation when preaching once said this, Despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. Delight, joy, happiness, they're all just infused into this all-encompassing way of thinking for Spurgeon. If you study the scriptures, you, you find that the biblical writers use words like joy, happiness, delight, gladness, and even blessing interchangeably. The Beatitudes, all of those blessed are statements that come out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios, which also means happy. Listen to how the gospel is described in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Isaiah says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul goes on in Romans 10 to quote Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 and to bring clarity to the fact that this good news of happiness is actually the gospel. 
It's the gospel of happiness. The good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ is a declaration not of joy at the expense of happiness, but a declaration of happiness in and of itself. There's no passage of scripture that pits happiness against joy. If you find it, I would love to see it. As if one is shallow and fleeting, the other is deep and rooted. As if happiness is joy's immature kid brother. Think, think of it this way. When you throw out the phrase, what a bright, sunshiny day. You're, you're not looking to parse the, the difference between bright and sunshiny in a phrase like that. Right? They're used in tandem to communicate a truth, to paint a picture. To be bright is to be sunshiny, and to be sunshiny is to be, to be bright. When, ta- when Paul talks about the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith... What he's essentially saying is this. I want you to be happy in God. I want you to be glad in God. I want you to delight in God. I want you to find your satisfaction in God. I want you to find your joy in God. And the gladder, the, gladder, the, the happier, the more joyful, the more satisfied you are in him, the more glorified, the more exalted, the more honored he is in you. For Paul, the Christian's joy, the Christian's happiness, the Christian's delight, and God's glory cannot be divorced from one another. God's glory actually shines in you when your happiness is in him, particularly going back to last week, in your dark nights of the soul. And so that's my hope for everyone who engages this church, just to be clear. It's, it's a fight for your joy. It's a fight for your happiness. It's a fight for your gladness in God. And since joy is connected with faith, and faith comes through hearing, Paul says, and hearing through the word, my commitment is to feed the church the word of God so that the saints might be happy in him. And I trust that that God will be glorified in you as you are satisfied in him as we move forward as a church. More to come with respect to that idea, God's glory, and our joy as we continue through this series. But for the sake of time, let's move on to verse 27. Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That word only at the beginning of verse 27 means always, or whatever happens, or no matter what. No matter what, regardless of circumstances, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the only command in this morning's passage. There's only one command found in all these verses, and it's this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, manner of life, has political overtones. Um, It can also be translated life as citizens. So Paul is essentially saying, no matter what, let your life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, if you were here in week one, we talked about the fact that Philippi was a miniature version of Rome. It was an official Roman colony with full rights for Roman citizens. The people who lived there were were unquestionably proud to declare themselves to be Romans. To be a Roman citizen meant you were Roman in every way. Roman thinking, Roman culture shaping and making, Roman allegiances and so forth and so on. Paul's saying to the church in Philippi, your citizenship is not ultimately in Philippi, nor is it ultimately in Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven, afforded to you by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
let the gospel shape you in every way. Gospel thinking, gospel culture making and culture shaping, gospel allegiances. He further unpacks what he means by that when he says, I want you to hear that, I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with, with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. In other words, I want to hear, church, that you have a single aim, that you have a single ambition. I want to hear that you're fighting for, that you're bleeding for the same cause in life. That, that phrase, striving side by side, means to struggle along with someone. It's this word picture of Christians fighting as gladiators in the arena of life together. It's this picture of the gospel spreading and, and conquering sin and unbelief as we in, intertwine our lives with one another. Let me ask you, when you think of the Christian life, when you think of the church, do you really believe it's a war? Because I do. I'm going to talk with this war word picture a lot in the coming months as we start to begin to look more in terms of vision casting as to, to where we're going. Do you believe that? That we're in a war. We're, we're in a war, and it's a war to see and savor Jesus Christ no matter our circumstances. It's a war to help others see and savor Jesus Christ, both Christian and non-Christian alike. And the spoils of this war are the glory of God and the joy of man, going back to what we just talked about. There's a lot at stake in this war. Paul's idea of the church is one in which brothers and sisters link arms with one another on that battlefield of faith. That's, I so badly want that for our church. That we would grab hold of that and embrace that word picture and, and live uh, in light of the implications of the fullness of that word picture, that, that we would protect one another in the midst of the battle to believe, that we would equip, that we would arm one another, that we would fight for and alongside one another, that we would carry one another on that battlefield. When, when we see brothers and sisters who can't uh, pick themselves up to walk another step, that we would bring healing to one another. That we would bring the balm of the gospel when we see shrapnel wounds in the lives of our brothers and sisters. What a glorious picture of the church. Paul goes on to say, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Think about it. Um, the fiery trials of life, going back to last week, the dark nights of the soul, when everything comes unraveled for you, they force you to put your money where your mouth is, don't they? You're going to turn to something, someone in those moments. And if you find yourself turning to Jesus and continuing to declare that he is enough in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, if you find yourself declaring that Jesus is enough when you experience more than a flesh wound on that battlefield of faith, you're probably not a pretender. To cling to Jesus through, through thick and thin, it has an affirming effect. It builds confidence that we really do belong to him. And it clarifies the picture regarding those who don't belong to Jesus. Paul goes on to say as he closes out this chapter, he says, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that I saw you, uh, that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. 
Just a couple things to point out in these final verses of this morning's passage. First, and make no mistake, Paul's wording is really weird here. First, Paul says that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in him. That belief, that faith in Christ is a gift. It's not earned. It's granted. We, we don't earn favor with God. We don't earn the love of God. Jesus earned it for us. He lived the life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sins. Our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. We received the gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone, period. The beauty of the gospel this morning for some of us in terms of, of compelling us to fight the good fight of faith is this. Isn't it good news that Jesus died for all of those moments that your fickle heart doesn't embrace for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain? Isn't that good news? That, that first and foremost, the call is not believe that more, Christian. Like, go out and live that more. No, the, the, the catalyst for actually living that out, the fuel that fans that into flame within us is the reminder that Jesus died for every single moment that my heart does not fully embrace, verse 21. And that is good news, my friends. If you are anything like me, if your heart is a pinball that just bats left and right, and you're fighting and clawing and struggling to, to believe that Jesus is enough, to see and savor him for who he really is, it's good to know that he died for all the moments that your heart doesn't grab hold fully. Second, that word believe in verse 29 is a present tense infinitive. I'm not trying to nerd out on you right now. just want you to understand that what we're talking about, what Paul's talking about, is not something that happen, happens once in the Christian life, but rather something that's current and continuing in the Christian life. Christianity is not believing in Jesus at some point along the way in order to obtain a get-out-of-hell-free card only to uh, fail to believe for the rest of your life. That, that's not Christianity. Christianity is a current, present, continuing fight to believe the gospel. Again, it goes back to everything that we talked about in the January series on the Everyday Gospel. If you weren't here for that or you missed any part of that, please go back and listen to that. That is DNA shaping for this church and where we're going. Again, Paul's idea of the Christian life is one in which we fight alongside one another to keep looking at Jesus, to believe in the promises that find their yes in him, as Paul says elsewhere in Scripture. And God, as we as we fight to keep believing, gives us the grace to do so. Third, there's another gift that God grants us with alongside belief, and it seems strange to call it a gift. Namely, according to verse 29, suffering for Christ's sake. Anybody else have a hard time with that one? Sounds weird to say, unless you understand the gospel. Notice that for Paul, it's not just suffering for suffering's sake. It's not just suffering to champion that you suffer well. Rather, he's talking about suffering with a purpose, namely suffering that shows the supreme value of Jesus. Again, Paul says, I want to show him to be what he really is, supremely valuable in all the universe. Going back to last week, there's some strange honor and privilege of going through the fire and flame while still declaring Jesus to be enough. 
that God uses you in those seasons to draw people to himself and to strengthen his church. You remember Peter in his moment with Jesus uh, where he rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to die on a cross? That's because at the time, Peter's gospel didn't have a cross in it. He was disturbed by Jesus' declaration. But, but it was precisely through the cross of Jesus Christ, through his suffering, that redemption was actually secured. And though our suffering doesn't redeem anyone in the same way that Jesus' suffering did, it does help point people to Jesus himself in a way that expands the kingdom and strengthens the church. There's something about walking through the fire and flame about experiencing a nearness to Jesus in the midst of all of it and knowing that it has a purpose that somehow has a gift-like, grace-like quality about it. And for, for many of us, we, we only understand that in the aftermath of having walked through it. It's like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. It's so strange, the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. My hope is that as we get deeper into this letter, deeper into this series, the more bothered we are by it and the more changed we are by it. We're going to receive communion in just a couple minutes. We do that here by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As we prepare to do that, I I just invite you, to do the same thing that I intend to do in the next two or three minutes. Part of that will be singing of the glories of Christ. And part of that will be spent uh, introspectively uh, with the, the, the help of the Holy Spirit. Wrestling with that, that question, where am I missing it? Where, where, am I, where am I missing the beauty of the gospel? I'll be honest with you. I, I think more than anything, I need to soak in the next two or three minutes in the reality that Jesus died for all of my sin and unbelief, past, present, and future tense, including all of those moments that, that Paul's declarative statement in verse 21 is nothing more than a coffee cup statement to me. He died for that too. And, and, and to allow that to fuel and fan into flame such a deep love and appreciation for the person and work of Jesus that, that I actually begin to live that out even